So good morning. Good to see you all again. I know this service, obviously I've been talking to those of you who have joined us online. Welcome you. I love you. I'm looking forward to participating with you in person so that you can really celebrate and worship with us. And just as a reminder, next Sunday begins the 9 o'clock service, one service per Sunday, and so we will be online for you, 9 o'clock next week. As you know, next week is the celebration of the 4th of July. I'm not preaching, so I thought I would say a little bit about our nation. You know, my sermon this morning, well, I should tell you first, because I have a little disclaimer, I have a little bit of an aside. Because the sermon title for me this morning is Hope for the Nation. Well, 24 years ago, I delivered a sermon entitled Grace for Today. And then 10 years after that, which would be 14 years ago, I delivered it again because I thought that message needed to be heard again. And although it's common practice among preachers and pastors to repeat sermons, that has never been my practice. However, Perhaps some five years ago, I delivered this sermon with some changes. I passed it by Pastor Bob, and I, he agreed that there had been so many changes that had occurred in America that this message was needed more today than ever. So here it is. Some of the people from the first service said, I kind of remember that, but they wanted to hear it again. So praise God. My text is 2 Chronicles 7.14. It should be on display behind me in the New King James, is it? Well, I want it to stick in your brain, so I'm going to repeat it again for my call to worship. It states, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Follow me as I go to Psalm 1914 for an anointing and for us to be anointed. So this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen? You know, the average age of great civilizations in history has been 200 years. That being true, that means that America has been living on borrowed time, and that I do believe to be true. America is a sick nation. It was so apparent from 1960 to 2016, from the 1960s to 2016, which when I first delivered the sermon, there was a 560% increase in violent crime, more than 400% increase then in illegitimate births, and there had been a quadrupling of divorces in this country, a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, and more than a 250% increase in teenage suicides, a drop 
of over 100 points for the SAT for our high school students. Today, 40% of all births every year are illegitimate. And even though the United States only has 6% of the world's population, we have 80% of the divorces. Today, we, we lead the industrialized world in murder, rape, and violent crime. Here's a tidbit. 80% of the whiskey consumed in the world today is consumed by Americans. We have a nation where the criminal is deified, the police are marginalized, the victim is vilified, and where evil is called good and good is called evil. We have become a nation where the life of the endangered bald eagle has become more valued than the baby in the womb. We have seen loudly and clearly by the people we have placed in the highest office that their character doesn't matter. So why should ours? We are a nation that is marked by moral regression, sexual revolution, and spiritual rebellion. And I predict that before America is conquered from without, she is going to corrode from within. America will not die from homicide. She will die from suicide. And we will not ultimately be destroyed by what someone else will do to us, but what we do to ourselves. And hear me, and hear me well. America's biggest problem is not inflation, interest rates, budget deficits, or even crime. Her biggest problem is sin. America's greatest enemy is not Iraq, Iran, North Korea, China, or Russia. America's greatest enemy is herself. America's biggest threat is not nuclear proliferation, terrorism, communism, or humanism. America's biggest threat is God. And America's only hope is not better government, new political leadership, balanced budgets, nuclear missiles, dollar bills. America's only hope is revival. I want you to see in one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, God's spiritual tonic for a sick nation. Charles Finney, the greatest revival preacher in American history, said, all ministers should be revival ministers and all preaching should be revival preaching. Well, I pray that you will see both in the message and in the messenger this morning. So first in your outline, consider the people that desire revival. Our verse Second Chronicles 7.14 is a specific prescription to a special people. Verse 14 starts, if, if my people who are called by my name. I've already said that our only hope of survival is revival, but having said that, I want now to say that revival must begin with the people of God because that is where the judgment of God will begin. 1 Peter 4, 7 states, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We need to understand something about revival. Revival is not for the sinner. It's for the saint. 
A sinner doesn't need revival. He needs regeneration. It is the people of God that need revival. You know, the psalmist was right when he said to God in Psalm 85, 6, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You know, we talk and live as if we are depending on the world to get it right. We will say something like this. If only we could get godly people elected to political office as if politics was the answer. If only we could get rid of the bars and the pool rooms as if alcohol was the problem. If only we could get a constitutional amendment denying forbidding abortion as if abortion was the problem. Personally, I think all those things are wonderful, but the church is not depending on America to get it right. America is depending on the church to get it right. You see, our biggest problem is that we have more of the world in the church than we have of the church in the world. I would much rather look for the church and find it in the world than to look for the world and find it in the church. Jesus did not pray to the Father and ask that he would take the church out of the world, but that he would take the world out of the church. Now let me be very honest with you. If we loved the world the way God loves the world, we wouldn't love the world the way we do love the world. Listen, it's not pagan America that needs revival. It is not the baby-killing abortionist that needs revival. It is not the liquor-selling bartender that needs revival. It is not the loose living prostitute that needs revival. It is the lazy, lifeless, lukewarm church that needs revival. Second in your outline, consider the pride that deters revival. See, God's people who desire revival are to, verse 14, humble themselves. And the word humble literally means to bend the knee. Humility is the essential ingredient to revival. You see, the reason why we don't have revival in America is because we haven't gotten low enough. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. In Proverbs 6, we are told, of the seven things that God hates. The very first thing is a proud look. You see, the reason why we don't have more faith in God in America is because there's not more fear of God in America. We reek with pride, and the stench of our self-sufficiency is nauseating odor to God's nostrils. We are too good to hang the Ten Commandments on the walls of our state houses. We are too wise to hang the Ten Commandments on the walls of our schoolhouses. We are too just to hang the Ten Commandments on the courthouses. Do you know the real reason why we are rejecting the Word of God? And it is not because we are a pluralistic society. It is pride. Pride leads to disregarding, dismissing, and disobeying the word of God. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4. 
If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud. It is pride that causes us to be prayerless Because the man who does not pray is the man who is really saying, I can do just fine without God. I don't need to call on him. He needs to call on me. It's because of pride that we can't get along and we have fights and arguments. Solomon in Proverbs 13.10 states, By pride comes only contention. Pride paralyzes. Pride polarizes. Pride politicizes. God hates pride, especially in the church. You remember the story that Jesus told about the tax collector and the Pharisee? Luke 18, verses 10 to 14. And the Pharisee stood up and said, God, I thank you that I am not a sinner like other men. As a matter of fact, in those verses, you'll find that the Pharisee uses five times that little word, I. Now the tax collector stood up and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Two men went to church that day. One man went home prideful, and the other went home justified. It was pride that God, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. It was pride that God, Satan, kicked out of heaven. Because pride is the attitude that says, I don't need God. I heard a little story about Muhammad Ali, the boxing champion, for those of you that are too young to remember. (laughs) He got in an airplane. And he was standing by the aisle talking, laughing, and entertaining the passengers. You know that humility was not his chief attribute. And finally, the stewardess came back to him and said, Mr. Ali, you'll have to take a seat and fasten your seatbelt because the plane is about to take off. Well, Muhammad Ali looked at her with a snarl and said, quote, Honey, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She looked at him and said, Yeah, And Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) Sit down and buckle up. Well, pride says, we don't need God. Humility says, I don't need anything but God. You know, I remind you that God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Third in your odd line, consider that prayer that demands revival. The next step in verse 14 is for God's people is to pray. See, prayer is a Christian's hotline to heaven and it is so tragic that we don't use it more than we do. You know, we think that revival comes more from organizing than from agonizing. Well, I can tell you the devil laughs when he sees the strongest Christian standing on his feet. And he trembles when he sees the weakest Christian getting down on his knees. Leonard Ravenhill has said, well said, the church is dying on its feet because it is not living on its knees. 
Now, you can pray without revival, but you cannot have revival without prayer. And as we pray, verse 14 says that we ought to seek his face. And the word seek there literally means to search out, to look for with great intensity. So much of our prayers is antiseptic, formal, repetitious, long-winded. And I'm afraid that prayer in praying is a lost art. We know very few people and have added very few preachers who really know how to lay hands on the altar and lay hold of God. And the key to, the key to that is found in James 5.16. It states, It is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Not the sleek, silver-tongued, evangelical television preacher. Then you notice, again, how we have to seek his face. We're looking for solutions to our problems when we ought to be looking for God because he is the solution to our problems. You know, so many of our so-called solutions to the social ills of our day would be funny if they weren't so tragic. For example, we say we need more money for education. I really doubt that. So what is our solution? To legalize and promote gambling because that tax base supports our schools. We say we need to stop teenage pregnancy. So what is our solution? Hand out condoms and open abortion clinics. We say we need to balance the budget. So what is our solution? Raise taxes, not curb spending. You didn't know that good stewardship doesn't work in government. We say we needed to stop AIDS. So what was our solution? Practice safe sex. I tell you, we need to quit rearranging the chairs on the Titanic and realize that without God, all our solutions will only create bigger problems. That is why our only hope is God and our only solution is revival, and the two are inextricably intertwined. Revival is the light of God that shines in our darkness. Revival is the love of God that breaks through our dullness. And revival is the life of God that flows through our deadness. Our problem is we are living in a nation that is more interested in gold than it is in God, more interested in riches than it is in righteousness, more interested in health than it is in holiness, more interested in prosperity than it is in purity. And fourth, in your outline, consider the purity that demonstrates revival. Prayer alone does not move the heart of a holy God. It must be sincere prayer that flows from a broken heart over sin. It is not enough for God's people to humble themselves and pray and to seek God's face. They must also, verse 14, turn from their wicked ways. Listen carefully. Prayer without repentance is a waste of time. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
A recent Gallup poll said that 9 out of 10 Americans pray every day. That sounds good. But I'm afraid much of the prayers are more like rubber balls that bounce off concrete than pierce through the velvet. They are selfish and come from the lips of the unsaved. Listen to Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. When it comes to revival, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can let go of your sins and have revival, or you can hold on to your sins and not have revival, but you cannot have both. You can forsake your sin and have revival, or you can hold your sin and forfeit revival, but sin and revival are mutually exclusive. And mark this down. Repentance is the root to revival, and revival is the root to more repentance. The word revival comes from a Latin word made up of the prefix re, R-E, which means again. And the word vivo, which means to live. So it literally means to live again. To quote Charles Finney again, he gave the best definition of revival I have read. He said, revival is nothing more than a new beginning of obedience to God. There's only one obstacle to revival. It's not humanism, communism, or socialism. The only obstacle to revival is sin, unconfessed, unjudged, unforgiven sin. And likewise, there is only one solution to sin. It is not remorse, regret, recommitment. It is repentance. What would that mean for the church? It would mean to quit robbing God of his tithe. It would mean to quit neglecting God and give him your time. It would mean to quit ignoring God and give God your talent. It would mean to quit disobeying God and give him your obedience. And fifth, in your outline, consider the promise that delivers revival. Now, if we meet these previous conditions... Here is the promise that God gives. Our text, verse 14, states, Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now there is God's definition of revival. Revival is when God hears and God heals. And we have two choices. We face two prospects. Either God hears and God heals or God confronts and God condemns. But here's some wonderful news. I can assure you that God is far more ready to send revival than we are to receive it. First, here we are promised God's favor. Then will I hear from heaven. The word here means to listen to a point where you are moved to action. When God hears, he heeds. Second, we are also promised God's forgiveness. He will forgive their sin. You see, when you get your soul clean, God wipes the whole slate. And then third, we are promised God's fruitfulness. And I will heal your land. 
The word heal is the Hebrew word rapha. That's a good word to end on. Because we are sick and in need of a healing that only the great physician can give. Woodrow Wilson, last words to the American people were this. Our civilization cannot survive materially unless it is redeemed spiritually. Nothing else matters if revival doesn't come. But nobody could put it better than William Bennett, who said, quote, Material gains will not be enough here. If we achieve full employment and greater economic growth, if we have a city of gold and alabaster, but our children have not learned how to walk in goodness, justice, and mercy, then the American experiment, no matter how gilded, will have failed. We have been given a spiritual tonic for a sick nation. It will make Christians well. It will make weak Christians, churches strong. And in this nation, which is called the United States of America, is not admitted into the intensive care unit of heaven and operated on by the great physician, this nation will die. But it doesn't have to. Because in our text, verse 14, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Amen. Well, service is over. I think we should all go forth and focus on what we can do as our part in bringing revival to New Hope Chapel. Amen? Amen. See you next week.